Um, I was actually with you guys about two years ago, and um, what struck me about this team uh, was a real sense of health, and so I really appreciated sort of the culture, uh, if you like, the philosophy of ministry, what is being built here. And particularly, I appreciated the sense of equipping and a desire uh, from the team to share ministry, to give responsibility and to see others raised up and doing the things that God's called them to do. And it was it was something that really struck me from my time with you. So um, in one sense, what I'm going to be doing in this session will hopefully build on what I see amongst you already and hopefully uh, will further what you're already about. Um, I'm, I'm married. I've been married about 16 years um, and I have got three kids, age 9, 11, and 13. I have a very manly Labradoodle dog, um, a miniature one. I'm very proud of going on walks with. And um, I'm also uh, leading a church called Mosaic Church, uh, which is in Leeds. We're a multi-site church, doing a whole number of different things. And I guess the stuff that I feel personally called to do and give my time to uh, would be sort of defined by three prophetic pictures uh, that I've been given over the years, all involving a sh uh, ships. And so the first picture would be that of a ship called Mosaic, and really since the early days, that's uh, of church planting 10 years ago now. Um, I had many prophecies about us putting a boat together um, and getting it ready for the open seas and it catching the wind of the Spirit, and off it goes. And that really is sort of a lot of my focus is what we're doing locally in Leeds. We moved to multi-site about two years ago. I haven't got much time to speak about multi-site. I know that some of you are starting to think about that. My lessons in multi-site would be this. Um, we went from a, a large sort of warehouse similar to this to three different locations across the city. And we lost the warehouse and we are now totally mobile and we just rent places on a Sunday. Um, no one told me how expensive it was going to be. Uh, no one told me how much of a running jump you need in order to produce that sort of change. Um, I would suggest, as I've spoken to other multi-site leaders, unless you are growing already, multi-site probably won't mean that you grow any quicker. And obviously, under the sovereignty of God, that generally has been the pattern. Um, what has happened, though, is local ownership. So people owning their part of the city and sort of their parish, if you like, has massively increased. So people love, instead of busing into somewhere centrally, people are loving getting out into their neighborhoods and communities. And it puts real value on that. But at the same time, it means the step up in from a leadership level to get the church on board with going to the nations of the world feels like has sort of ramped up and has become increasingly uh, sort of a challenge as people have got focused very locally. And um, we as a church now, we've done something like, uh, in the last four years, we've done three church plants and three sites. And so there's been a lot of change, a lot of movement. Um, but uh, overall, um, our people, I think, are with us and excited about the mission ahead. But that's just my little take-home things about multi-site, if that's helpful. So there's a ship called Mosaic that I'm called to build. There's a shipyard, which we hope to build many more boats. And that really is a dream of mine. 
uh, in what we're doing at Mosaic. Leeds is known for having two teaching hospitals, a real center of excellence in medicine, and we would love over the years to grow in our sort of experience and understanding of how we train up leaders and get them planted. And the third prophetic picture is that of an armada of lots of different ships, different shapes and sizes coming together under the banner of Jesus and sailing wherever God would have us go and hopefully to the ends of the earth. And so part of my time is sort of gathering uh, leaders from other churches and for us to sort of explore that together. And I guess those three pictures, uh, pictures of a ship, a shipyard and an armada really feed into what I want to share over the next uh, couple of days. Um, this afternoon is hopefully a very practical session on how to multiply leaders, how to raise up more leaders, more elders, more church planters. And tomorrow I would, um, t- so today is going to be sort of hopefully very sort of lots of application, uh, very practical. Tomorrow uh, I feel like God's given me something that I would like to sort of share with you. And the best way I know to do that is to do a little bit of a preach. So I'm going to be sort of preaching to you and hopefully that will have a bit of a prophetic edge tomorrow. So shall I pray? And then we'll get down to business. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you're doing in this family of churches. Uh, thank you, Lord, that um, there are some fantastic foundations here. Uh, but we pray these two days together would be significant. And I pray particularly about this, the, the, the word that was brought earlier about seeds that have been sown that perhaps have lied dormant or are yet to really come into fruition. I pray that somehow as we look at this stuff together, that those seeds would take root and grow and multiply for the name of Jesus and for the sake of the nations, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, as Morris said in the introduction, I've got a real church planting passion. But sometimes the best way to go about increasing church planting is not to take it head on, but actually to start with the availability of leaders. And so that's why it's important we look at how we grow and multiply leaders, because ultimately it will bless you locally if you have more leaders. But I know that it will lead to greater church planting. And so the couple of assumptions that I'm bringing into um, this session um, informing how I look at growing leaders are these. Number one, even though uh, the shepherd is probably the most common role that you see in scripture as regards to sort of church leadership, I, I think another way of viewing church leadership would be the role of a Sherpa. You know, a Sherpa is someone that helps people climb mountains. And personally, I find that a very helpful picture for what I would like to give myself to in leadership. A Sherpa is a servant role. It's the one that carries the bags, but often the Sherpa is the person that knows the mountain the best. They've been to the top before. Uh, there's very little personal agenda. They're very willing to sacrifice their uh, view from the top in order to get others there. And I feel like that is a mature role that we should take on as leaders, that we are not just in it for our journey, but we're really in it as we mature for other people's journeys. And so I want to be the sort of leader that is happy for climbers to go further than me. And I want to be the sort of leader that loves sharing what I've seen and experienced, but I want people to meet with God themselves. I don't want them just to ride on what I've 
the little I've tasted, I want very much to lead them up the mountain for them to do it. So that's my first assumption. My second assumption is this. In leadership, discipleship is the first order of business. In leadership, discipleship is the, is the first order of business. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So give me character over competency every time. Give me character over competency every time. Skills, experience, that's all important. But I want a leader that's been shaped by encounter with God. And that's what I want to give myself to in inputting different leaders. I want them to know Jesus for themselves passionately and have a life transformed out of that relationship. And then I can give them the skills they need in order to help lead in the church or in the marketplace. But they need the character themselves. Is everyone with me so far? So those assumptions, I've got three people nodding. And that's, yeah, with me so far. Great. So I think I've got about eight things. We'll see what we've got time for. Number one. First principle is paying attention. Um, If you've got young children, you will speak to them about paying attention all the time. It seems a very simple thing to do, just to pay attention, but it's actually very, very difficult. We are distractible people in a very distracting world. But it's incredible the number of times leaders in the Bible speak instructions of paying attention. Just look, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Watch your life. In other words, pay attention. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Peter 5. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Hebrews 10, and let us consider, that word for consider, uh, I guess the easiest translation would be like uh, someone that's lying on a couch and a counsellor is taking notes as they listen to them. Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so it goes on. I think the emphasis is paying attention to the people that you are wanting to raise up in leadership, getting them to pay attention to the work of God in their lives, And then getting them to pay attention to what God is doing in others. So it starts from you and flows out into others. It sounds very, very obvious. But I don't know if you can recall a moment in your life where someone has properly paid attention to you. Someone has listened to you and given you time. Someone has asked you questions that has left you feeling like you understand yourself and what God is doing in your life far better than when you first met. My experience uh, in meeting with church pastors in particular would be that um, and there is very little paying attention to the work of God in our lives because of the busyness that we feel in our jobs. And so it's incredible. Just last week I met with a pastor and everything on the surface looked great. But as I paid attention, what came out was that he was underlying all the success in ministry. Underlying that was a deep concern that he has begun to grip his children too tightly because he's so angry with them. 
And he has no idea where that anger comes from, but he just knows in the moment as they don't do what they're told, he can feel himself. And he feels an incredible amount of shame. And it just needed someone to pay him attention. I um, Last year, I gathered um, a few church leaders that are wanting to learn how to pay attention to the people they're raising up. And this group of church leaders, all elders in the local church, as we spent literally, it was probably four evenings together, just paying attention to what God was up to in their lives. What came out was one guy was very unaware of this, but he was actually intentionally lying to his wife on multiple different occasions. And there was a lot of deceit going on in his marriage. Another elder had actually had a child from a previous relationship that he'd given up to adopt for adoption that his fellow elders knew nothing about completely hidden full of shame another one of the guys meeting had deep lying hurt from an experience with a, a previous pastor in a previous leadership team if we believe that god uses all of life to shape us and mature us and grow us then we must help people engage with God in the everydayness of life. And what that needs is paying attention in this life. Otherwise, what happens is life just takes us by the scruff of the neck and drags us on. And we never stop to assess what's going on. We never pause. We never pay attention. People are generally too busy doing to think about being. John Stott um, responded to J.I. Packer's comment that he felt Western Christianity was a thousand miles wide and an inch deep. And he said this, hopefully I've got this quote. He says, I wonder how you would sum up the Christian situation in the world today. For me, it's a strange, rather tragic and disturbing, disturbing paradox. On one hand, many parts of the world, the church is growing by leaps and bounds. But on the other hand, Throughout the church, superficiality is everywhere. And that's the paradox, growth without depth. No doubt God is not pleased with superficial discipleship. The apostolic writers of the New Testament declare with one voice that God wants his people to grow up and grow into maturity in Christ. So I'm arguing for us to give ourselves to the leaders around us. And it's a really simple thing, but I feel it happens so rarely give yourselves to the people that you want to see raised up go a little bit deeper open your life up listen well one writer puts it like this i found this so helpful this sort of encapsulates what i've said so far it's a guy called robert thomas who wrote crucibles of leadership he said this the education of a leader is a complex thing certainly talent matters But even the most naturally gifted will have a lot to learn. And one of the most important things a leader needs to learn is what he or she stands for, what he is made of, what she believes in, what lines he will not cross. Crucible events and relationships will have the potential to reveal what the leader stands for. And sometimes the revelation is immediate and obvious, but it can just as easily take years to figure out. Isn't that true? Often, it's only as you look back, you see what God's been up to. The key is being able to notice. 
to be open to learning, we need to find ways to leverage the critical formative and transformative experiences that men and women have in their own lives that can reveal to them who they are and where they stand. So just to define it a little bit more, what I'm asking of you is to think about paying attention to the key moments in the lives of those that you're inputting. So for me, I've got four guys that I'm spending a lot of time with at the moment. One of them um, is going through, uh, his dad is going through a massive breakup in his church. So he's on staff and basically the church have conspired to remove him from that position. And so his dad's basically lost his job and and being kicked out of his church. And so this up and coming leader is having to deal with this situation. I know it's a critical moment in terms of his love for the local church and being able to trust God when everything looks very bleak for his dad. Second guy, um, three weeks after he got married, his wife's father died. And so they're only they're less than a year into marriage. And for him, the, the thing that has shaped his marriage is helping his wife grieve properly. It's a critical moment for me as a leader inputting his life to pay attention and teach him to pay attention to what God is doing. I've got another guy who's out of work at the moment and dealing with a very apathetic lifestyle. So he hasn't got a job. He just wants to work for the church. He's quite naturally just loves comfort and just doesn't want to work very hard. And it's pretty obvious there are some massive lessons for him to learn in this season, for him to step up into church leadership. If we just stand back and hope for the best, if we just assume that they're going to work it out, I think we're abdicating our responsibility in investing in guys. Pay attention. The perceived shallowness in the church may be due to us knowing all the right answers, but failing to actually integrate those answers into the reality of our lives. Assuming people will do it themselves. And you know what? Time and time again, I meet church leaders who have never had anyone do this for them. And so for most of us in the room, we are making it up as we go along. We're like, we've not had it for us. But we want to make sure that we're the spiritual mums and dads that make sure the next generation get it. So it's a lot harder ask. But here are some of the things that I think it looks like. Number one, love. You know, so for me, I've been doing this for 15, 20 years now. And I love it. I love the guys that I'm getting time with. I absolutely feel passionate for them. And some of my best times during the week is the time I get with them. And... For some of you guys here, that would be spiritual dads, spiritual grandfathers. There is an incredible power when older men take on younger men and just love them. You know, just for them. Just say, I've got your back. I'm here. I'll listen. Won't give you loads of advice. I'm just here. And for many of you, that is how you can do this. You know, I think there's something about intentionally having times where you just receive the spirit and you prophesy over people where you perhaps where necessary see them delivered of some demons and and we tend to do that with our guys we we just say look why don't you come around for the evening we'll get together we'll worship pray but the agenda is to hear from heaven it's to see breakthrough see freedom come 
And for some of you, that's a great way to pay attention to the people you're inputting. Um, for some of my guys, it's just telling them to be, less, to be uh, far less intense. So what I'm giving you is, obviously, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm swinging this way on the heart stuff in order to challenge and provoke you. But the reality is you want balance, don't you, with this stuff? And we try and aim for that. And some guys get too sort of into, oh, my gosh, my heart and all that sort of thing. And actually just need to bring them back, trusting God. Um, Here's a big one for you guys if you're a church leader or a business leader with some responsibilities. I think paying attention, a big chunk of it, is listening, not advising. Um. We can get so used to people coming to us, to, coming to us wanting to know what to do, that very quickly we listen to the problem. We know, oh, there's a solution to that. Let me tell you what that solution is. And that will never lead to great maturity on the whole in the people you're investing in. Far better is to help them find the, the answer themselves, to either go to God or to go to the scriptures or to bash it out, so it takes longer, but they learn how to problem solve themselves. I think we move to advice very, very quickly. Uh, Richard Ruhr, who's a, a, a priest, he said this. He said, Jesus is asked 183 questions directly in the four Gospels. He only answered three of them forthrightly. The others he either ignored, kept silent about, asked a question in return, changed the subject, told a story, or gave an audio-visual aid to make his point, told them it was the wrong question, revealed their insincerity and hypocrisy, made the exact opposite point, or redirected the question elsewhere. 183 questions. Only three he answers directly. We've got quite a lot to learn on that front. Do you know... Um, you may not be the best counsellor or the best person at processing what's really going on. My hint to you would be, if you don't know what to say, is just ask why. So someone comes to you and says, I'm feeling this, or God's not doing this, or this is what's going on in my life. If you just ask the simple question, well, why do you think that is? And just keep asking that question, why do you think that is? Till they don't know anymore. And my guess is you've gone down a few levels of honesty and vulnerability. So just keep asking the why question. Um, I'm nearly there. I'm paying attention. Um, This is really important. Um, When you pay attention to people's lives, there's a really unique role that many of us have at being able to publicly affirm what you see. And so we must give these up-and-coming leaders a seat at the table. We must affirm them enthusiastically and publicly. And we must realize that if God does all that he needs to do in this person, there will be a peer moment where the relationship changes from someone who is sort of your up-and-coming person to when they're sitting level with you and maybe going further. And it clearly happens to Titus. Paul takes Titus on a journey and he starts off as his son and ends up as his partner. And there's a lovely dynamic that happens between the two. And we must be prepared, if we really do believe in this stuff, to allow these 
up-and-coming leaders to become our partners and peers. Okay, so that's number one, paying attention. Number two, let's keep going quickly. Uh, Number two, root out coping mechanisms. Root out coping mechanisms. Romans 12, verse 2, promises transformation. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That word for transformation, it's a Greek word that means metamorphosis. It's only used a couple of times in the whole of the New Testament. And one of the places it's used is for the transfiguration. So Jesus is metamorphosized in front of of the disciples. He changes it. That word, it means wholesale change, fundamental change from one thing to another. And that is the transformation that the gospel promises us. That's the work of sanctification that God wants to do in our lives. But our experience often doesn't match that. And so coping is when you try and change And it doesn't work. And so you have to adjust your behavior so you don't look like you struggle with that thing. So just spell it out. Something that often happens in meetings like this is that if you're someone that struggles a bit with rejection, it means that you come to a meeting like this really wanting to find acceptance. And the reality is if you struggle with rejection, the worst thing is for someone to find out that you are struggling with rejection and that you want acceptance from them. So we mask and we hide, we pretend, we make it look like we're confident when actually we just feel very insecure. We talk up what we do in order to look perhaps a certain thing to certain people. Whatever the dynamics are in our hearts, that may happen. And I just want to say this, if, if we are not careful... What we spend our energy doing is hiding so that no one sees that we struggle with this thing. And that is coping. That's just pretending. It's sin management. It's just us knowing what behavior is expected in this family of churches and adjusting likewise. It's not the deep-seated transformation that the gospel promises. Is everyone with me on this? Everyone know what I'm talking about? It's coping. And what I spend so much of my time doing with young leaders that want to come through is to root out their coping mechanisms, where they believe the gospel says it brings this sort of change. It's not been their experience thus far, and therefore they've just changed their behavior to fit in and look godly rather than pursue the deeper things of God. So what I'm arguing here is for a high view of the gospel and a high view of grace, because I believe it does bring that sort of change. Being satisfied with coping mocks the gospel. And so I was speaking to a pastor who suffers from working too hard. And so his way of coping is to make sure he takes his day off. And I celebrate the fact that him and his wife are going to get a day off together. But it's not the transformation the gospel promises, diring in a day off. Because his workaholism will spill over into other things. He'll simply work harder for six days so he gets his day off. It's just coping. And so I want to find out why. Why he feels the need to do that. So we're dealing with the issue. Man, so much I could say about that. Let me just say this. Uh, I was speaking to a young up-and-coming leader last year who 
was really struggling with his eldership team because his eldership team were waiting for him to consistently um, demonstrate leadership in the local church. So um, he was frustrated because they weren't using him and they were frustrated that he wasn't just demonstrating a level of consistency in the everydayness of life. And there was a clash in the team. He kept on getting advice from the elders who were trying to be open about the frustrations of just sort it out. You know, get, get up early every day, spend time with Jesus. Then when we give you a responsibility, we want you to see it through to the end. Blah, 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 blah. All of which on the surface seems very good advice. But when we got some time with this young guy, this real story was that his dad was an alcoholic. He'd never, ever experienced love from a father that was consistent. And so he's always struggled with knowing that he's loved by God. And that has meant that he's always struggled to have a consistent life with God. And suddenly, as we talked about this with the team and with him, and he just broke down in floods of tears because he was feeling the pressure from the team. And the team, it was just a lovely moment of reconciliation where they realized, oh, we have been giving him stuff to culturally make him into the guy we want him to be to lead. And it's all coping. It's never dealt with the issue. So part of our job is just to unpick the coping in our people. Everyone with me? Good. Thirdly, vocalize what you are learning. So I think the Apostle Paul was fantastic at doing this, on taking people on a bit of a journey with what was going on in his own heart. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is probably the, the most famous example of this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Those words uh, about boasting, those words about delighting in weakness. Paul's somehow managed to walk that line with being able to share very openly about what was going on for him. But he just did it appropriately. The focus wasn't on him, but God's ability to change him. And I think that's a great model for us. Are you able to communicate the lessons in leadership and character that God is teaching you? It's really important you do that in an appropriate way. You model so much if you can talk about God's work in your life to others. It lets them in. It's a model of honesty and vulnerability. But it also teaches them to do the same. So here's what I'm learning at the moment. A leadership lesson would be this. I've got a little triangle here. And this represents, as if, uh, if you're a church leader here, this represents what you probably spend the majority of your time doing. You're either spending time on vision. So you're casting a big vision. This is what God's spoken to us. This is who we want to be as a church. Or you're actually doing that stuff, you're working out, you're achieving some goals. This is sort of like the hard work of being a church. Or thirdly, you're spending time learning what it is to be a community, going deeper with each other, being a family. And that makes up the majority of what we do. 
Now, in a healthy church situation, you may do a little bit of all those things at the same time, but generally you will be pushing on one of those sides of the triangle at any given time. And so you'll be giving yourself. So we've just gone to multi-site in the last few years. So we were on vision for a big run-up to doing the big move. So we were vision, vision, vision. This is what we're doing. But you know what? If you stay too long just talking about what you want to do, not doing it, it leads to disillusionment. And some churches spend far too long just talking about what they want to do and be rather than actually doing it. And so the triangle has got to make a turn. You've got to move from vision to actually doing something to your goals. You've got to have some things that you get to enjoy doing together as a church. But the problem is, if you spend too long on goals, then your church gets burnt out. Because they don't know why they're doing the stuff. They're not enjoying it, doing it together. They're just really giving themselves to doing stuff. And in the end, it leads to burnout. Community, well, that's what you need. You, if you're suffering from doing too much, you need to just spend time with one another. You need to get time going deeper. But you know what? If you spend all your time just in community as a church, then it leads to infighting. Because we often don't see eye to eye. It can lead to disagreements. If all you're doing is spending time with each other and not going for what God's called you to, not actually doing anything, it's all about... The church itself, any small group that just does themselves eventually breaks apart. So this is my learning moment. When we went to multi-site, went big on vision, turned the triangle, went big on goals, and we did a great transition. And what I wanted to do as a leader once we moved into our three sites is go back to vision and say, we're here, let's go and get everyone. This, we're on mission, we're going to really drive hard, do this, go this. And actually what the church needed was me to take the triangle and just turn it once more to community. Because they all needed to find each other again. We'd done so much change. We'd sort of blown up the church and planted it. All they wanted to do was, I just need to know where I am. Just give me a couple of months, maybe a year, just to settle down. And so big leadership lesson for me is that I blew it in the first year of being multi-site because I went to vision and I should have gone to community. So it's really simple. And we've used that on Sundays, used it in different leadership moments to help people understand, actually, this is a moment of consolidation. We want people to feel safe. We want people to feel on it. And then we'll go to vision again. So that's a little lesson that I'm learning. Character lesson I'm learning. Well, lots of things I could say on this front. Let me give you this one. Um, um, where do I start? Where do I start? It's probably the most common thing that I have to deal with in terms of uh, my weakness and vulnerability is rejection. And so that's sort of my story growing up. And the way my sort of the way that I am desperate for acceptance often gets manifested in. There's quite a few different things, but often it comes through what I eat and what I look like. And so my somehow, I don't know when it happens, but somehow in my brain, I equate looking a certain way with being accepted by people. And therefore, what I eat is quite important in what I look like in being accepted by people. I'm really messed up. 
just to say that. The My Paving Slab. You don't want to look under there. But for whatever reason, that's my stuff that I'm trusting Jesus for. Now, about a year ago, I realized that I just felt that I wasn't moving on in that. And my tendency was towards coping. And I really sought God saying, God, I, I, I want to change. I, I, I want to know your healing power come to this area of my life. And I had a wonderful meeting um, with someone who was able to help me see how I could find a way through. And he drew this on a, a napkin for me, I think the next slide. And he's drew a little balance beam like this. And at either ends of the balance beam, he wrote despair and control. And that can be my life in that I flip from one to the other. So let me just take my food and eating. I, can, I feel really bad about what I eat because it reflects on what I look like, which reflects on feeling accepted. And so I can really get down about that. And I can have seasons where I just feel down about myself. I feel like I'm in despair. And I guess the biblical word for it is that I'm living in unbelief. So there's no faith. I'm just feeling down about my life. Now, what happens is I spend a season in unbelief. And then God speaks or someone prays for me or something wonderful happens. And I suddenly feel faith comes and I want to change. And so I go into super, like, get everything sorted mode. I'll do a big 40-day fast. I'll spend time in prayer. I'll get up really early, nights of prayer, whatever it takes to get going again. I'm super controlled. And I'm pretty good at it. And I can find my life pivots between those two things. And I guess what control only leads to is pride. Because I'm the one that's achieving it. So that's a little insight into what's under my paving slab. What was so helpful, my lesson, my character lesson, was that there's a way through. And these three things is what this guy said to me. He said, you are going to control and despair to find intimacy with God. And that is a fallacy. Those don't, you do not find intimacy with God by going through unbelief or pride. But there is a way through, and the way through is holding tight to the gospel of grace. The gospel does find a way through. But secondly, vulnerability deals with the huge amounts of shame that we all feel about the stuff that is hidden away right in the darkest recesses. So for me, admitting to anyone that food, I don't relate to food properly, is a massive deal. I hate having to tell you all. I seriously hate it. But I know that as I'm vulnerable, I break the power of shame in my life. I realize that as I'm open, then the gospel works in a very specific way with how I feel. Because I should feel no shame. Because the cross has dealt with all this rubbish. It's dealt with it completely. But also the third word is ownership. And the word ownership means that um, even though I'm not perfect, even though I've not dealt with it, I am still moving forward with this. I'm owning it. I'm owning it and believing and trusting that God can make a way through. It's acknowledgement. And so they're the two lessons that I'm learning at the moment. And I've tried to share this a lot because many, many people, even though they might put different 
things on their balance beam. Many of us live like that from one thing to the other. Anyone here? Yeah, yeah, great. Fourthly, have a leadership development plan in your church. A few years ago at Mosaic, we realized that we had a very clear welcoming process. We had a very clear evangelism strategy. We had a very clear membership process. But we had nothing for new leaders. So it was totally uh, informal. It was ad hoc. We had no idea what was working, where the gaps were. And I want to encourage every church. It doesn't really matter like how comprehensive it is, but you need to work out for yourselves how you're going to get person, a person who perhaps becomes a Christian to becoming someone who is a maturing believer that is investing in others. And you just need to work out what goes in between those two things. We've spent a bit of time thinking about it. So I'm going to show you ours. And it's complicated because we've spent far too long thinking about it. So this is how it starts for us. So that's our sort of vision in the middle. Join God's mission through building community and making disciples. This is like a baseball diamond that you travel around. A little bit like Rick Warren used. Um, and so it goes from the bottom all the way through. And we just wrote down the things that we would like to see an unbeliever who walks into our church. They're the steps we want them to go through. So we want them to believe and be baptized. We want them to belong in the church and start investing in the church. We want to see transformation, God's work in their life, and we want to train them. So ultimately, they're leading and discipling others. All clear? Yeah, that's, what, that, that's the journey. That's the journey. So then we said, well, what do we do? How do we help people? Because it's great to have a vision, but we need some help. So the next stage was this. We just put things on the baseball diamond. They're the things that we do. So number one is Launchpad. That's like our membership course. So that's where we direct people after uh, they've become a Christian. Secondly, we do a, a discipleship track where we teach people to be a disciple of Jesus. Thirdly, next bit of the baseball diamond... We train them how to lead a small group. We call them mission groups. And then lastly, we want them to be a lifelong learner. So they're the sort of the centralized things that we do in our church to help develop leaders. And then the last element is we chucked in, you can't quite see it, but all the stuff that we do in each section. So if you're on that movement between, one, uh, between the star and one, so you're just becoming a Christian, what happens? Well, you go to intro, which is like our alpha course. You might be coming through job club. It might be that Sundays is your sort of gateway into becoming a Christian, or it might be through our small groups. And we just wrote on this everything we do to support that movement through the church into leadership. Everyone with me? Yeah? So what we discovered when we first did this is that we had nothing between two and three. So everything was loaded at the front end, at the back end, but we just assumed people would somehow go from becoming a new Christian to being a leader in one of our small groups and reproducing themselves. And we had no nothing. It was all totally informal, just a couple of people doing all the work. We realized we had a massive gap in the church. And so, as I say, it doesn't really matter how complicated your thing is. But it does make sense at some point in your team just to map out how we're going to take people on a journey into leadership. 
what it does is if you're a leader, if I'm an emerging leader in your church, I know what you're asking of me. I know what hoops to jump through, if you like. I know what you want from me. And that's really important because it stops a lot of frustration. And like I said, it will help you spot your gaps. Fifthly, find out what the blockages are in leadership development. So we did an interesting, uh, slightly well, very vulnerable thing, actually, as a team. We assembled all the different people that worked for Mosaic, volunteers and paid staff, people in senior leadership, and we asked someone to come in and ask us a ton of questions as to how we develop leaders and where the blockages are. And this is what the feedback we got. So this was like a self-assessment for Mosaic Church. This is what we came up with, which is what the church came up with. They said, we love the fact that character always comes first, but the bar of holiness is too high. So, I mean, it's hard to believe, really. But for a new person coming in, they hear the stories, look at the lifestyle, and they say, I'm never going to be that person. You just don't know quite understand what I'm dealing with at the very basic level. It was too high. Secondly, the standard of excellence. Now, if you come to Mosaic, we are shabby at times, but generally we do want to do things well. And for most people, it was, again, the bar was far too high. And so the things that our church feels most nervous about is being asked to do the news. Because we plan the news six weeks in advance. We've got a script of what gets spoken on a Sunday. We limit ourselves to two notices. It's very strict, like what gets into the notices and what's said during the notices. It's all vision, detail, blah, blah, blah. And someone, bless them, has to stand before a big crowd of people with this sheet of like 25 things they must get right. And it's like, it's just telling people what's going on in the life of the church. And we've made it into this huge thing. Um, Obviously, no one else in the room has a high bar of excellence, but that's just obviously ours. And interestingly, because we'd done a couple of church plants involving full-time elders, the feedback was you have to be a full-time elder to plant a church. That's how the training happens. And lastly, our feedback was because we we try and do a good job training our small group leaders, all of them feel completely overwhelmed. So, so many people don't want to become a small group leader because, again, we've set the bar far too high. Now, the reality is we don't expect that. But, you know, when you teach, you say, we want you to be this sort of leader and we want you to do this and you could do this. And if you've got seven evenings spare a week, you could do this and disciple everyone and do a great Bible study and lead worship and prophesy, you know, and it's just a small group. And that's why no one wants to do it. So it's really wise to just get some feedback from your church as to what the blockage is for coming through. So how high is the entry bar to leadership in your church? Like how high is it? And think of it, small group leader. Do you just take anyone? Or is there a big process involved? Are you a church that is all prophecy and no action? So you prophesy over people, you call out great things of God, but you don't actually let people do anything. Or are you all action and no prophecy? 
So there's tons of stuff to do, but people aren't catching what God's saying to them and being given wonderful dreams and creative stuff from, from heaven to get to do. Are there present leaders who block others coming through? Are there leaders or a, is there a senior leader or whoever who's more of a control freak or doesn't want to let go? Are there past disappointments and failures in the church that means people don't want to lead because they associate leadership with pain and difficulty? What is the church culture regarding risk? So letting people have a go. My guess is if you're over 40 in the room, this is just a guess, most of you were given a lot of responsibility in your 20s. Can I just, if you're over 40 and you're given quite a bit of responsibility, just have a look, that is a lot. So personally, at 25, leading a large church, no idea what I was doing, but given responsibility young. Who here is leading a church and they're under 30? Who here has been saved in the last five years? It's great you're here. That says something about the culture. And I think it's good here. Is the eldership team a bottleneck? So... As elders, we are given huge responsibility to shepherd and love the church. But often what happens is it becomes the thing that every decision has to come through. And so there's often a huge waiting list of items to be discussed. The future agenda really stays a future agenda. Do some things need to change? Do you let people dream? You know, what we can do for fear of get people getting away from sort of with themselves a little bit and almost having uh, almost maybe the danger is pride or the danger is them failing. We can often dampen out people's dreams. And we do it because we say we want to protect them, but actually we are just sort of putting this glass ceiling down and saying no, no further. I wonder what the racial and age and class make up of your leaders is. So that's another great question. So look at your church and look at your leaders. And that will tell you something if those two things aren't the same. Racial, age and class makeup. Okay, sixthly. Don't underestimate the power of life-on-life discipleship. So we ran a brilliant training course, lasted 18 months, invested in people. We run three of those courses, so over five years, trained numerous, numerous people. We would do feedback at the end of every course. The same feedback came at the end of each of those three courses, all these people we trained. We asked them the question, what is the best thing about our training program? And their feedback was, we really enjoy coming to your house, eating your food, and hanging out with your kids. And, you know, I thought we delivered a brilliant program. 
But for some reason, they just wanted to hang out with us. 1 Thessalonians 2, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So a lot less leadership development happens in the pulpit and in training courses than we think. It mainly happens in the everydayness of life. Friendships, fun, parenting, discussions, arguments, tea times, open houses, more food. It all happens around that time. You know, interesting, last week, a guy popped over to my house. He texted me at half past five. He knows we eat as a family at six. And he has had a history of just turning up at our house half past five. Oh, oh, you're eating. Oh, great. Can I come? And so he's spent a couple of years just pitching up at our house. He's a leader in the church. He's now married. And last week, he texted me at half past five, saying, oh, can we just pop over? So he popped over. I immediately put some more food on. He sat down. And for the next two hours, we did the washing up. We hang out with the kids. And we managed to grab a little bit of time to pray and talk together. And he's going through probably the biggest thing that's happened to him in his life. And he's trying to work it out as a newly married man. I love the fact that there's a culture of just dropping by and giving him some food and then us talking about the real stuff. And um, it got modeled to me when I was a young believer. And you guys, I mean, we can all do this. We can all open a home. Massive cost to it. So buy a dishwasher. Um, buy a huge mat at the front of your house so people wipe their feet before they come in. Get wooden floors. Buy cheap crockery. You know, all that stuff, because you will go through it like crazy. But don't forget the real power in this stuff is sharing your life. It's not training courses. It's not about that stuff, really. It's about life-on-life discipleship. And I think if we're busy people, we can just get far too tight on the time that we give the people that we should be opening ourselves up to. And speaking of the younger generation, many of it's now sort of the millennials, Generation Y. They're not cynical like the Gen Xers. They're not like disappointed with life and life dealt them a difficult hand. Gen Y is a much more open and enthusiastic. They have gone through the depression and they have hope that things can get better and so with that generation i want to show them what family life looks like because they expect that they can do it but they just don't know how so i want to show them like parenting stuff i want to show them how me and my wife pip deal with difficult issues and it's good for them to listen in and here's my last one because i want to get used to talk to each other i've got to half past yeah so my last question is this. How healthy are you? How healthy are you? It's very difficult to raise up godly servant-hearted leaders if you're not one. So something we do as a team pretty regularly is we do the dials. And so we draw on a bit of paper a dial going from empty to full. And we do the categories of spiritual, physical, emotional, and relational. Really simple stuff. And on those four dials, we say where we are. Are we empty? Are we in the red? 
Are we sort of middling or are we full? And we draw that out spiritually, physically, emotionally and relationally. And then we swap those little diagrams with one another and we just give time to sort of say, oh, full on this, full on this. But this one's in the middle. This one's in the red. What can we do? What's going on? Let's talk about it. Guys, if you're in the red in any of those things, then um, you need to find a place to talk and to pray. This is true. Most church planters get fatter, fussier, angrier, lonelier, poorer, and more at odds with their spouse during the first two years of church planting than any other time in their lives. The pressure hits. And it's very difficult to stay healthy if you're a church planter. And I would probably broaden that out into most forms of leadership. Research from the Schaefer Institute. I mean, guys, this is a depressing note, but here's some stats. This is from the States, the Francis Schaefer Institute. 50% of ministers start, starting out will not last five years. 60 to 80% do not last 10 years. One of every 10 ministers will have to step down because of sin issues. One in 10. That's 15 people in the room. 50% feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 70% of pastors feel grossly underpaid. And 70% of pastors constantly fight depression or feel burned out. Guys, we must be aware of the pressures of the call on our life. And you, like me, you believe that if God calls you, he will give you everything you need for that call. Often we miss it. Because we're so driving into the call of God in our lives, we don't stop and ask for the resources we need or ask for help or go to others. And as we do that, then we model to the next generation of leaders how they will achieve some longevity. I would love to continue for the rest of my life doing what I do. And I'm sure all of you do. We must be very careful that we don't end up building a culture in our church of ill health, spiritually, physically, relationally. So here's what I'd like to do to finish, just to get you guys thinking, wake you up a bit. I would like you to get into threes. And in your threes, I would like you to share one learning point from today. So I, I hope there's at least one learning point from today. Something that as you listen to, you thought personally that requires some action or some thought on my behalf. So I need to do something about that. And then once you've done that, if you've got time, I'd like you to discuss stuff you agreed with strongly and stuff you disagreed with strongly. That's always interesting conversation. So something you feel personally, and then generally you can talk about stuff you agree with and stuff you disagree with. Everyone know what they're doing? So keep the group small so you get time to talk twos or threes.